Today's scripture is Judges 11, 1 through 5. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows connected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's so nice when you guys respond. I appreciate that. My name is Will Vakurvich. I am Mission Collectives and Communities Director here at Redemption Tempe. I've been here for a whole month full time, so it's exciting to be with you guys. Um, <laughs> thank you. So prior to this, I had a couple different jobs. Um, I, I worked in the nonprofit sector, social work, and I was also a teacher. And when I was a teacher, one of the things that I learned is that you want your students to... Um, know where you're going to go in, in your lecture, in your talk, in your class, whatever. So just so you guys know, this is where we're going to go today with our passage in Judges. We're going to talk about God rejecting Israel's repentance, a prostitute, and child sacrifice. So it's going to be super encouraging and uplifting today. <laughs> in all seriousness, um, that, that's true. We are going to talk about those things. Uh, and they're difficult. And so in prep, trying to figure out what, what's the connection, um, I had this, this divine uh, inspiration, this revelation the other day in the midst of binge watching um, Netflix. It's a holy time. Uh, how many of you guys are familiar with the show, The Walking Dead? Anyone? Y- yes. Thank you for admitting it, even in church. I appreciate that. So if you, if you don't know the show, it's a very simple premise. There's a zombie apocalypse. Some people live. And they're trying to survive, right? Pretty straightforward. The show starts, don't worry, no spoilers. The show starts with a sheriff's deputy who's been shot and he goes into a coma and he wakes up in the hospital in the midst of this like zombie apocalypse and doesn't know where he is, doesn't know where his family is, doesn't know what's going on. And that's about as positive as the show gets, And so if you've been with us for any length of time, as we've been walking through Judges, it's kind of the same. Ricardo started the series by saying Judges goes from bad to worse to worser. That's his words, not mine. And and so, so you guys are aware today, we're like making this transition from worse to worser. It's not as bad as Judges gets, but we're going to see things really start to fall apart. Okay, so in the midst of that darkness and brokenness, if you guys need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and one of the ushers will get that to you. Um, Go ahead and keep your hand up high. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at home, this is our gift to you. Go ahead and and keep it. Uh, If you do, then they can be returned to the back. Uh, There's a rack there on your way out. Um, We're going to be on page 136. We'll be in Judges starting in chapter 10, verse 6, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 12. So we got a good chunk of scripture. Uh, As we enter into this, would you guys pray with me before we get started? God, thank you. Thank you for your word. 
Thank you for the honesty of your word, the things that you decide to include in your word. We thank you for um, the way that you enter into the hard situations of life, the pain, the brokenness, the despair. We thank you that you put on flesh and stepped down um, from heaven to dwell among us, to live in the midst of us, and to bring light to the darkness. Help us to see that today. We love you, Jesus. Please help us to love you more. Help us to love each other more. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So... We're going to get started in chapter 10, verse 6. The author says this. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If you guys have been here throughout this series, this is familiar. This is a a reoccurring theme throughout the book of Judges. So familiar that we even made a a handy-dandy visual for you guys to remember this cycle. And it starts each time with sin. The people do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. They do what's right in their own eyes. They sin. They turn away from God. From there, God sends a people group to oppress Israel, to bring them back into repentance with him. So an oppressor comes. In the midst of the oppression and the pain and the brokenness and the hurt, the people cry out to God in supplication. They ask for deliverance. And God sends a deliverer. He raises up a judge to bring salvation for the people. And then it says that the land has rest. And so we've seen this cycle over the last four weeks of Israel sinning, God's um, sending an oppressor, Israel cries out, there's a deliverer, and the land has rest. So keep that in mind as we read through the passage today. Um, Picking up in verse 6, Israel did what's evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, the Ashleroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. I believe this is intentional here. Up until this point in the story, we've seen Israel pursue maybe one or two other gods. But at this point in our story, the writer says that they served seven different gods. You have to understand in Hebrew culture, seven was the number of completion. God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. So what the author is implying here is that Israel is completely abandoning God. They're completely serving after these other gods, and they're not just random gods. These are other gods that, has, have, that Israelites have already served. They've already worshipped. God's already brought oppressors through these nations, and God has already delivered them. I think initially it's easy for us to brush over this, and, you know, like none of us in this room would ever sin and then ask God to deliver us and then turn back to the same sin And then ask God to do, no, just me. I'm the only one here that does that. We can see ourselves in this story. And so we see Israel cry out, right? They sin, they're oppressed. Now they're going to cry out. This is the typical way these cycles unfold. Um, The anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel in verse 7. And they go on. There's the oppressors, the Ammonites and the Philistines. And then in verse 10, the people of Israel cry out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? We've been here, guys. I've already saved you from these people. The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you. And you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go, cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. As I was reading through this text, that passage hit me. 
That response by God is uncomfortable because I prefer like the loving, gracious, kind God, right? The, the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the wayward sheep. I don't like the God that says, tough luck, suck it up. Go cry out to these false gods whom you have chosen. And I was troubled, like, how am I going to communicate this in a positive way where people don't just totally feel bummed out? And where is the goodness of God in the midst of this? This is a tough passage. And then I went home. And thankfully, I have these little theologians that help me to understand God. They live at my house. They're my children. And some of you guys know them. The oldest, his name's Will also. He's the fourth and he's four years old. And the youngest is Micah. And they're boys. And I mean that in every sense that you would think of like energy and destruction and violence. They're those boys. And so we try to rein them in unsuccessfully most of the time. And and I'm, I'm playing with my kids and I see this interaction that is very familiar to us. My oldest is running because we haven't told him 7,000 times, please don't run in the house. And, and he's, as he's running, he slams into his brother over the shoulder, does a, sorry, Micah. And keeps running to go play with his toys. And so dad steps in. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, buddy. Come on back here. That's not how we say we're sorry. Sorry is not a strategy or a tactic to get you to play with your toys quicker. He has to come back to his brother and help his brother up. He has to look into his brother's face and tell him what he's sorry for. Do you forgive me? They hug each other because sorry, or in this passage, repentance is not a way to manipulate God. It's not transactional in that sense. God desires heartfelt worship. God desires intimate relationship and a half-hearted sorry over the shoulder as the Israelites are running towards their next distraction isn't good enough here. So God stops them. He slows them down. He says, no, come back. It's not good enough. There needs to be something restorative in our relationship, not just shallow. The Israelites start to take notice. We see this in in verse 15. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. He's not motivated because, like, they finally punched the right combination in. He realizes that they're starting to step back towards him in relationship. They're taking these initial baby steps, and God grows impatient over their misery. Salvation is always motivated by God's compassion, not the goodness of us. God is the one who's moved here to save. Like we said, it's going to start to unravel. Things are falling apart. And so traditionally in this cycle, what we see is that God raises up a deliverer, that the Lord is the one who appoints the deliverer over Israel. We even see in the Gideon story that the angel of the Lord comes down and speaks with Gideon. You will be the one. God appoints the deliverer. In this story, in verse 17 of chapter 10, we see that the Ammonites were called to arms. They encamped in Gilead. There's going to be a battle. And in verse 18, the people... The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Do you notice the difference here? God doesn't raise up a deliverer. The people 
decide to take the control in their own hands and choose who will go for them, who will lead them into battle, who will fight for them. We see things falling apart. So now we're introduced to the main character in our story, Jephthah, starting in chapter 11. And Jephthah, I got to be totally honest, like the beginning of his story, I love this guy. Jephthah is the underdog, right? Jephthah is the Denver Broncos. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. I know there's Broncos fans. So Jephthah, we meet Jephthah in the, in the start of, of chapter 11, and it says that he was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. And as his story unfolds, we learn some things about Jephthah. So his mom's a prostitute. Um, the narrator identifies his father as Gilead, which a few weeks ago we met Gilead the person, but chronologically this doesn't work out. The, the author is being somewhat ambiguous here in the language. And so instead of thinking of like his father was this individual person named Gilead, he is a son of the Gileadites. And another way would be like if we said somebody is a son of Phoenix, a son of Arizona, a son of the United States, not an identified person, but a people group. He's a product of this culture whose mother is a prostitute. Not your typical hero. Not someone that the culture would esteem, instead someone that the culture would marginalize. And we see that play out. His brothers talk amongst themselves and say, we don't even know who his dad is. He's not a real relative. He's not in the in-group. He's not one of us, so let's push him out. Let's send him into exile. We don't want to share our inheritance. Too many mouths to feed, not enough resources. It's a strategic move. So Jephthah is sent away to the land of Tob, which when translated means good. There's irony there. And in the midst of this exile, it says that worthless fellows collect around him. I I like the literal translation better. It's empty men. Men without resources. Men without status or privilege. The poor of the poor, the marginalized of society, we see that Jephthah is Robin Hood. He's become a mighty warrior with a band of merry men whom society has pushed to the outskirts. And in the midst of this, dominant culture realizes we're in trouble. We need somebody to help us out. And there's probably going to be some dirty work in this battle. So who do we go to? We go to Jephthah. Jephthah is a Sawyer from Lost. Jephthah is Daryl or Merle from The Walking Dead, right? Jephthah is Mike from Breaking Bad. Pick an illustration. Jephthah is Tupac. Jephthah is this person that has been pushed to the outskirts of society that society realizes we need their voice. We need their help. In the midst of their pain and heartache and tragedy and sorrow, they have learned something. They have acquired a skill set that is now beneficial to us. So the leaders of the city go out to find Jephthah. It says to get him. It's very consumeristic. They're not motivated and moved by compassion, by repentance, by sorrow. Oh my goodness, look what we've done to our brother. No, it's this guy has something we can benefit from. So they go get him. They say, come lead us, come fight. And Jephthah says, no, I'm not going to do it. 
So they work out this deal, right? Jephthah's a survivor. Jephthah's like the street smart guy. And so he's like, okay, you want me to lead you, but you hated me. You pushed me out of my homeland, out of my father's house, away from my brothers, away from my family members who should have cared for me, who should have taken care of me financially, emotionally, all of these things. Back then, you didn't want me. Now I'm hot and they're all on me. So he uses this to his advantage and he says, if I fight for you, when I win, I will be your leader. I will be in charge of Israel. And the people agree. And we can't help but notice the parallels here, right? We start this passage with Israel turning their back on God, finding themselves in hot water, crying out to God. God says no. They realize that their repentance needs to be a bit more heartfelt and God has moved. Now we have Jephthah who his people have turned their back on him. Now they find themselves in hot water. They ask him to help. He says, no, say, okay, you can be our leader. And Jephthah's moved. So Jephthah, right. He's, he's got like the worthless fellows. He's a mighty warrior. He's done some, some business here. And so he realizes what has to be done. He first, instead of just jumping right into action, he sends a messenger to the King of the Ammonites asking him, what's the problem? Why are we fighting? Is there a way that we can find peace? The king of the Ammonites replies and he says, you Israelites have taken my land. And so Jephthah says, okay, let's have a conversation. He sends a messenger back and he says, let me tell you a few things, king of the Ammonites. Number one, from a historical perspective, you're inaccurate. When the Israelites were coming up out of Egypt, he tells the story of the exile and and he says, we asked your ancestors, could we pass through your land peacefully? to get to the promised land that the Lord has given us. And your ancestors said, no. So we went around. We went around your land. We never invaded your land. Historically, you are inaccurate. Theologically, Yahweh has given us this land. Your God, Molech, has given you that land. So theologically, you have no basis for this argument. You have no basis for this battle. From a logical sense, other kings have tried this. And they haven't fared very well. So logically, you probably don't want to test Yahweh. And chronologically, it's been 300 years. We've been here for 300 years. If you had a problem, you had 300 years to address it. You haven't, so calm down. And then he does this thing at the end that I just love. And he, you know, he basically says, like, but look, king, if we have a problem, we can step outside. Right, Jephthah knows how to handle business. And it reminds me, if you guys have seen the movie Taken, where, so Liam Neeson is like this dad who's like secret agent, special forces, like tough guy. And his daughter goes to Europe, she gets abducted. And at one scene, he's on the phone with her captors. And he says, look, I've spent a lifetime developing a very specific skill set that makes it difficult for people like you, right? Like we're going to have some serious trouble and good luck. And then the movie, you know, unfolds from there. That's what Jephthah's doing. He's saying like, we can make peace, but you just need to understand if you don't want peace, we can handle this another way. Yahweh's going to win. The king of the Ammonites took no notice of his words. Who's Jephthah? Grew up on the margins of society. Why should he take any notice? So, story continues. The spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. 
And Jephthah begins to prepare for battle. He goes from town to town collecting his army to go fight the Ammonites. And he also does something else. Now, the Spirit of the Lord is moving him to battle. The Spirit of the Lord is ensuring his victory. The Spirit of the Lord is directing him from town to town so that he can strengthen his army. The Spirit of the Lord is not doing this other thing. This is Jephthah. The other thing that Jephthah does is he makes a vow. See, he knows what scarcity is. He's lived with the effects of trauma, of abandonment, of not knowing his father, of having a mother who's a prostitute and a family who kicks him out because they don't want to share resources. He understands scarcity deeply. And he knows that God is good. He knows that God provides, but don't we know sometimes it's just really hard to believe that. So Jephthah hedges his bets. He says, okay, God, I know that you're with me. I know that you're good. I know that you have provided victory after victory after victory after victory, but just in case that's not enough, whatever comes out of my house after you've given me victory, I will sacrifice to you. Whatever it is, whatever it is, God. So this whole story is built up to this battle. We meet the leader. We learn his history. He's a mighty warrior. But in the text, The battle is just a very small paragraph. They fight. God gives them victory. Says that Jephthah struck a mighty blow. And then he goes home. And we're hopeful. We're hopeful at this point of the story because the underdog has won. Right? Like, miraculously, somehow, old man Manning pulls out the Super Bowl. We're hopeful. We, we have this image, right? We see this, these videos on our Facebook newsfeed of soldiers who are returning home from combat and they surprise their children in the classroom or, you know, the mom comes on the basketball court when the kid's going to shoot a free throw. And I think they must be so distracted, but these great vivid images of people coming home, people who have willingly put themselves in harm's way for their families, for their communities. And there's tears of joy. There's excitement there's, there's this sense of this is right. This person who has gone out and been placed in danger has returned home whole. And it's a scene of rejoicing. And we see Jephthah's daughter rejoice. She runs out to meet him. She's singing. She's dancing. She's playing the tambourine because that was a thing then apparently. And, and this is the same way that the Israelites rejoice when God brought them through the Red Sea. It's the same language. They're singing. There's dancing. There's tambourines. And there's tears of joy. Jephthah's daughter is ecstatic. Her father is home. And then there's Jephthah, who remembers his vow. He remembers that he did not fully trust God. And so in order to ensure his victory, he relied upon a foolish vow that he made. A rash vow made in haste from a place of fear. Instead of a place of faithfulness, he tells his daughter that he's been brought low. He realizes what must be done incorrectly. You see, Jephthah should know better. This man who can deliver this great message to the king of the Ammonites about Israel's history and four different reasons why they shouldn't go into battle should know. He should know that Yahweh does not delight in human sacrifice. As a matter of fact, there's a passage in in Deuteronomy chapter 12, which he would have been familiar with, that clearly speaks to the situation. 
He says, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? They should not worship in the way the other nations do. They should be worshiping in the way that Yahweh commands. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. The language that Jephthah used in his vow is that he would present whatever comes out of his house as a whole burnt offering. God does not delight in this. The Spirit of the Lord did not inspire this. Jephthah's fear, Jephthah's abuse has turned him into an abuser. He hasn't dealt with it. This is not the way that things should be. So Jephthah's daughter says, do to me according to your vow, only give me two months to go mourn with my friends. So she and her friends go to the mountains and they mourn for two months. It says they mourned for her virginity because she was his only child. The family line ended there. Jephthah was so fearful of scarcity that in the midst of his fear, he makes this vow, which ends up costing him everything. So she returns, and we hope. Like, it's been two months. It's been two months, Jephthah. Like, read your Bible, dude. Like, talk to a priest. Do something. Read in Leviticus where God says, if you make a foolish vow, there are ways out. There are things that you can do. You can offer a different sacrifice. God does not delight in sin. But Jephthah sticks to his guns and says he did to her according to his vow. And there's great mourning. There's great sorrow and sadness. And the text tells us that every year the women of Israel gather to remember this daughter of Jephthah. Because this is not the way that it should be. We see this continue downward spiral of sin and depravity. And now the man that is supposed to be the deliverer of Israel, the one who is supposed to lead the people back to God, has made this horrible vow and fulfilled it. The irony here is that Jephthah was saving Israel from the Ammonites, whose God is Molech who delights in child sacrifice. Jephthah is attempting to redeem Israel in the ways that this pagan God desires to be worshipped. This is ugly. This is broken. And in the midst of this, we see Jephthah utterly distressed, and here comes the Ephraimites in chapter 12, kind of out of nowhere. And they're angry with Jephthah, and they say, Jephthah, we're going to kill you. We're going to burn your house down on top of your head because you went to battle, and you didn't invite us. And everything just kind of feels like, what? Where did these guys come from? (laughs) And now we see Jephthah, the survivor, respond in a different way, right? We saw him negotiate with the leaders of Gilead. We saw him barter with the king of the Ammonites. We see him hedge his bets with a false vow. And now we see him respond with rage. He says, first of all, I did ask you to fight with me. You said no. I had to take my life in my own hands. My men and I went into battle and God gave us victory. You weren't there. 
So they did the only natural thing that somebody in Jephthah's position would do. He tried to kill all of them. Think about this. The deliverer of Israel, who was saving Israel from violence and murder, kills fellow Israelites. This is heartbreaking. Jephthah's winning the battle. His men are victorious. And there's a few survivors that are trying to flee. They're trying to get away. But in order to get from um, where they are, where the battle is, back into their homeland of, of Ephraim, they have to cross the Jordan River. And so Jephthah, because he's a mighty warrior, knows this. And he makes a maneuver to block their exit. So as these survivors are trying to cross, they're trying to blend in with the people there. They're trying to get across the river Jordan so that they can make it home safe. And Jephthah's men devise a test. And they say, if you're going to cross, we're going to ask you if you're an Ephraimite. And if you are, we're going to kill you. So they say, no, we're not. So Jephthah's men say, okay, this is a river. Say the word for river, which is Shibboleth. The Ephraimites can't pronounce the SH sound. So when they try to, it sounds like Sibboleth, and they know the difference. We still use these things today, right? We can still use language to decide who's in and who's out. So an example from just the last few weeks, a presidential candidate in a speech says two Corinthians. You guys know what I'm talking about. Evangelicals in North America say, that's not how we say it. He's out. Now, I'm not saying he's a good candidate or a bad candidate or you should vote for him or not vote for him or that it was right for a people group to decide he's out just based on that one incident. I'm not making a political statement. All I'm saying is we do the same thing. We use people's language to decide who's in and who's out. So that's what they did. By the time this story is over, Jephthah and his men have killed 42,000 of their fellow Israelites. 42,000 of the people he was supposed to save. 42,000 of the people he was supposed to deliver and protect. This is a heartbreaking story. This is a dark story. So what can we possibly get from this? Where is there hope in the midst of this? I got three things for you guys. First of all, we have to realize that sin is not only individual. Sin is communal. Sin not only affects us, it affects people around us. You see, this story of Jephthah didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in a specific context. Ricardo alluded to this at the start of the series. These are Israelites, they're brickmakers, who have traveled into the promised land to become farmers. And they don't know how to farm. But instead of trusting God's goodness, as a people... They turn to the foreign gods, the gods of agriculture. Because God who has saved them from Egypt, God who has, you know, displayed his power through the ten plagues and parted the sea and kept them safe through the desert and all of these things, he might forget. He may not provide enough. So as a people, they turn their hearts away from God. We see this in, in the start of the story. The people, again, have done what was right in their own eyes. Each individual has com contributed to this collective turning away from God. We see this in, in Jephthah's history. This people group, he's a son of Gilead. The people have allowed this. 
They've allowed this son of a prostitute to be exiled because they don't want to share their inheritance. I can't help but feel this today as we have 19,000 children in our foster care system, but it's probably somebody else's problem. I can't help but feel this as we drive by corner after corner and see people experiencing homelessness, but you know what? My budget's tight too, so I probably don't want to help. It's somebody else's problem. We'll just push them into exile, into some mythical land of Tobe or good. But it's not my problem. Collectively, we turn away from our brother in need. Sin is not just individual. It's communal. It's both. Jephthah was in a context. He had a wife. He had friends. There was probably somebody around him when he made the vow that could have said, dude, don't do that. Don't say that. During the two months of his daughter mourning, knowing what would happen to her, somebody could have intervened. Nobody spoke up. Somebody else's problem. It's not my daughter. Sin is not only individual, it is communal, and Jesus died to reconcile all of it, thankfully. Next, God desires worship, not manipulation. Jesus says he's looking for worshipers. We see manipulation in this story. We see the people of Israel. Ah, God, we know the cycle. We repent. Okay, come save us, God. God says that's not good enough. We see this in Jephthah. Okay, Yahweh, I know you're with me. I know the spirit has rushed upon me, but you know what? That may not quite be enough. So if I make a vow, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I make a vow, then you really have to save me. That's not how God works. I I think about it like this. God is not like McDonald's. God is like a meal at my mom's kitchen table. Okay, follow me here. If I go to McDonald's, it's, it's a transaction. I give them money. I tell them exactly what I want. They give me something that kind of resembles food, right? It's consistent. It's the same. I'm in control. I decide what I want to eat, where I want to eat it, right? I can go inside. I can go to the drive-thru, eat it at my house, right? I'm totally in control. That's not how God operates. We don't get to manipulate him through fake repentance or through rash vows. God is more like my mom. When we go home to Northern California, she can create delicious and healthy food out of her kitchen, And typically it's like, well, gosh, let me see what I got here. And she'll just pull together some ingredients. The woman is amazing. And she's healthy too, right? Like it's good for me. Not like McDonald's. It may not be what I ordered. It may not be on my terms. Like she cooks it. She decides when we're going to eat. But it's good for me. God does not want to interact with us as we pass through his drive through God wants to invite us into the kitchen to sit at the table and prepare a meal that's healthy and nutritious and beneficial. He desires relationship. He desires authentic worshipers, not people that think we can manipulate him. God's not the lucky rabbit's foot. He's the loving father. Which leads us to our third point. You see, Jephthah, we have this contrast here. Jephthah is a fearful father whose violence produces pain. Jephthah understands violence. He's seen people sacrifice to foreign gods. That's what he knows. And in the midst of his trauma and brokenness, he goes back to what's familiar. He tries to interact with God in the way that Molech 
desires worship, and it's just not good. He tries to barter with God and manipulate God with the sacrifice of his daughter. And it ends his family. Not only that, we see this man who's heartbroken over the loss of his daughter in the very next chapter, murder 42,000 people. His pain is multiplied. This is a dark story. But in the midst of this darkness, we see a contrast because we have a loving father in God whose goodness produces plenty. You see, God knew that we would sin and that we would need a savior. Jesus was not an unaware child who didn't know this rash vow that his father had, had um, committed to. Jesus willingly knew. He understood the plan says he humbled himself. He took on flesh. He stepped down from heaven into the midst of our brokenness. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. A knowing, loving sacrifice. Jesus knew what he was getting himself into. He prayed in the garden, Father, if this cup can pass from me, please let it. We see a God of love who's motivated by compassion we see a willing, loving son who takes the sacrifice upon himself so that God's family can be multiplied, not ended. We see in Jesus a brother who does not fear to share his inheritance, but willingly lays his life down for us so that we may also be adopted as sons and as daughters. And there's nothing that we can do to earn more of God's love for us. We cannot become more sons, nor, nor can we become less sons. We are his children. We've been invited into God's goodness by the willing and loving sacrifice of his son. And this is good news. This is where we see the shattered image of a false deliverer in Jephthah who falls apart. And that darkness highlights the goodness of God's love. The willing sacrifice of Jesus to share his inheritance with us. Not to cast us out, but to draw us in. Church, this is good news. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are good, that you are loving, that you provide plenty, that we don't have to fear scarcity, but that we can trust your goodness because you have provided the best sacrifice that there is, the willing sacrifice of your son, so that we may be adopted as sons and daughters. Jesus willingly shares the inheritance with us, not motivated by fear, but motivated by love. Help us to learn from this example. Help us to care for those that our society has exiled. Help us to understand that you came to redeem not just individual sins, but also communal and systemic sins. God, thank you that you care about every square inch of life. Thank you that you died to redeem all of it, that you're good and that you're in control. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you more. Help us to trust you more. We pray these things in your name. Amen.